Welcome to Living Wisely, Living Well, timeless wisdom to enrich every day with Asha Nayaswamy, one of the spiritual directors of Ananda Palo Alto and a founding member of Ananda Worldwide. If you enjoy this content and are inspired by the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda and his disciple Swami Kriyananda, find Asha on YouTube, Facebook, all podcast directories, and her website, ashajoy.org. Living Wisely, Living Well, November 23rd. Flow through life as though on a downhill ski run. Don't puzzle your way through it as if playing a game of chess, plotting each move carefully in advance. Bring spontaneity to everything you do. The smooth flow of intuition can be disrupted by too careful reasoning. Rely more on soul guidance. Swamiji, um, grew up in Romania and in Switzerland, and skiing was a very big part. He went to school in Switzerland for like a year and a half, and skiing was a big part of his childhood. He, I, I knew him just at, just at the point in which he wasn't able to ski anymore because he developed arthritis in his hips. But it was really a, a, something that he particularly enjoyed. So oftentimes when he would try to talk about intuition and how life should work, he would talk about how you go down the hill when you're skiing. I've only skied a few times in my life, but enough to understand what he's talking about. You're at the top, the momentum starts, and you can you know, scout it out ahead of time, but you really can't know until you're right there sort of what's going to be required of you to make it. And if we're too fixed on exactly how we're going to do it without really also being conscious of, of what mother nature might throw at us, we'll either crash, well, we'll crash, is what will usually happen, or we'll just have to come to a stop. It just won't work out that way. Now, the thing about life is that it's always unexpected. The thing about life is that it's a vast interplay of all these energetic forces, which we, we simply can't tame. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a, an evolutionary development of awareness and this is a, a, a big subject, and I'm just going to touch it here, but four stages of development, which, uh, oddly enough, it may seem odd to you, are actually defined by what has now become called the caste system in India, but put out of your mind everything that you know about it from the point of view of social oppression. It, it came from a higher age in a completely different context, and it was just the recognition that we evolve through these various stages of awareness. And it was, it was a, a tool a little bit like astrology, where you, you don't think that a Leo is not as good, somebody with their son in Leo is inferior to someone with their son in Cancer. You don't really like make all these comparisons about who's better than someone else. You just look at what the reality is of the pattern of a person's consciousness, and then you think about how can we take this consciousness to the next step. Because it's self-evident when we look around that everybody's at different stages of awareness. It's just the way it is. So the fundamental principles of the caste system are that the, and I'm going to be very brief on this because this is a huge and very interesting discussion, and I'm going to send you to my YouTube channel if you want to look for it, and I think you can find it if you try. Um, there's, there's a level where our only thought, this is all about how we avoid suffering and how we find happiness. And the lowest level of awareness is we try to avoid suffering by um, going unconscious. 
And we're all a mixture of these. Bear in mind, nobody's exact. We go unconscious. We drink, we take drugs, we oversleep, we overeat, we watch too much television, we lose ourselves in video games, we chatter, chatter, chatter endlessly. We, and I love this phrase, binge watch, which is a phrase I've only recently learned. We just lose ourselves in mindless entertainment, passive entertainment, until we can finally fall asleep. And whenever anything bothers us, we just become duller rather than bigger. And, and, um, and the second stage, where we, the second cast, where we try to avoid suffering is we try to get control of the world around us. We just realize that this world is very uncertain. It causes me to suffer because people don't do what I want them to do because I don't have enough money, because I don't have enough power. And, and we just start building our systems, you know, and we, it, takes, it takes willpower. We've advanced from the idea of that the dullness is the way to be. We recognize, no, dullness doesn't really work, but putting out energy for what I can get for myself and making the world behave, now that's the way to make it work. And people do this, and they get very, very powerful doing this, but we discover after a while that things happen. There, there's a, a, a story, and this is supposedly a true story, a man who was caught in Europe in the First World War, and after it ended, he realized there was going to be a Second World War, and he absolutely did not want to have any part of it, so he scoured the world for the safest place. He was going to make his world safe. And he settled on the island of Guam, which, I mean, no one had ever heard of Guam, until after the Second World War, when it became the center of the war in the Pacific. He'd done everything he could to insulate himself, and what happened, all the war just came to him. I mean, it's a dramatic example. We all have our own. So after a while, while means many incarnations of testing this theory, we realize that I cannot control the world around me. It, it's a good idea, but the problem with it is it doesn't work. I mean, death itself is totally beyond our control. So the third stage, the third cast, stage of understanding, is I realize the way to avoid suffering is to develop self-mastery. Self-mastery over my reactions, reactions to the ever-changing world around me. So the effort then moves from trying to control external events to the self-mastery to remain in, in a positive, uplifted um, state of mind regardless of what happens to me. Now, of course, this is the whole spiritual path. This is Sanatana Dharma. This is recognizing that the external world is a reflection of the inner world. The inner world is the source. And the fourth stage is when we become so devoted and so aware of the presence of God in our life that there is no suffering. Because whatever comes is God's will. So why would I resist? And it's all for my good, so there's no possibility of suffering. So now, when Swami talks about flow through life like a downhill run, we're participating in the external world. Because what we have to understand is we, are, we come to this world to be engaged in it. We're not meant to be here to just spend the whole time wishing we weren't. Some people have a, a misunderstanding about what spiritual life is. Well, if I'm supposed to be detached from life, then I'm just going to sit here and wait to be rescued. 
But that's really the same as the first cast, which is all avoid suffering just by being dull. And I'll put out as little energy as possible, and I'll refuse to relate to what's around me. People can spin that with a lot of really um, sophisticated theories. But what it really amounts to is just, I'm just going to hold back and uh, not participate. Now we see when the saints come into the world, they participate. And even if, it's, if you're isolated in a cave, they're dedicated to their meditation or their spiritual practice. And when saints live among ordinary people, and when, when God-realized masters, avatars, live among ordinary people, they are profoundly committed. They, they participate completely. But they participate like a skier going downhill. Swami described Paramhansa Yogananda, and he was talking about trying to understand... I mean, Yogananda died in 1952, and Swami Kriyananda was with him from 1948 to 1952. Swami was 22 years old when he came, and when his guru left his body in 1952, Swami was not quite 26. Swami lived to be, I believe, 87. He lived until 2013. So he had all those years afterwards when he had to be in tune with his guru's consciousness, but he had to take the intuitions he received and, and act as his guru would have acted. So Swamiji always made a very strong point of saying, the question is not what did Yogananda do? The question is what would Yogananda do? If he were faced with the circumstances that I'm presently faced with. You see, this is the skiing downhill. You can't see, say, well, when Yogananda came down the hill, he turned here and he went like that and then he did this. But in between, of course, it snowed. And so the whole downhill looks really different. So you can't even follow the same path he followed because everything has moved forward. So you have to ask, not what did he do, but if he were faced with these circumstances, what would he do? What are the principles? What are the intuitions? What are the ideals that governed him? And Swamiji articulated it in a marvelous manner. He said, Yogananda was, was completely attuned to the vibration of what he was trying to accomplish. And the vibration of what he was trying to accomplish was given to him by his own Guru Babaji through Sri Yukteswar. Babaji is the overarching deathless master who has everlasting responsibility for the spirituality of this world. Not, not solely, not alone, but through this line of teaching. All of this is an autobiography of a yogi and is a whole other story. We're just going to assume it. Yogananda was guided by the vibration of Babaji's consciousness. So every decision he made needed to be in tune with that vibration. And rather than there being what is sometimes people say, well, Master himself said, I left a blueprint in the ether, he said. And so some people think that means we should build this building at this time and this place with this many stories and make it this color. Swami said, no, the blueprint is the vibration of energy. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to match that vibration of energy. He said, even in his own lifetime, what Yogananda did is he responded to every opportunity that was presented to him that was in tune with that vibration. That's, I mean, that's a really interesting thought. He responded to every opportunity that was presented to him that was in tune with that vibration. When you look at 
the the magazine that Master um, published during his lifetime. It was called, I believe, it was called Self East West Magazine at that point. It was called, and it's full of all these little ads. I mean, these are like historical documents from the 1920s. It's full of all these little ads for various products, and you sort of look through it, and you gradually realize that every one of those ads is something that Yogananda himself is producing. And it's carrot juice, it's goat milk, it's papayas from the orchard that he started, and my favorite was this little thing he called the Temple of Silence, which was this device he created, which was a headband that had two earplugs in it, so you put the headband on and plug the ears in, and then coming out from the headband was just on this sort of slightly bouncy little piece of wire, was an image of the spiritual eye, which is what you see. No, no, it wasn't. It was just the star. Because when you meditate, you will see, if your mind is calm enough, this the spiritual eye, which is a, a field of gold with a dark blue uh, field, a, a ring of gold, a dark blue field, and a white star. And the white star is the the entryway to cosmic consciousness. That, of course, is another big story. But so right in front of you, this white star would like bob at the point where you should stare at it. So you could cover your ears and then you could stare at the white star. I mean, it was just absolutely wonderful. You know, it was every opportunity. He needed money. He had to, he had to earn money in order to support his ashram. He said, in India... The guru sits there and the disciples support him. He said, in America, the guru supports the disciples. I mean, that's the way it is. This country is, was a little different, especially in his time. So he was always having to think about what he could do to sort of help make it work. He responded, I mean, that's just on the material plane. On the spiritual plane, he was always innovating and thinking of new things to do and had all these wonderful classes that he would give that had incredibly creative titles, where is Jesus now and what is he doing? You know, like, that's a great one. And my, my favorite of these is, um, let's see, instantaneous healing by the power of divine superconscious will, bring your sick friends. <laughs> that was one of his programs. <laughs> because it was an opportunity. People were ill. They needed to understand this. And, and if it matched the vibration... And the vibration was what? To help people, to be in tune with sanat and dharma, to be enthusiastic, to be committed. You know, he, and none of this existed before. In India, he didn't have to do anything like this. It wasn't like his own Guru Sri Yukteswar had ever done any of this. But Master was skiing downhill. And he just had to see where, where is the place? Where's the next opening? How can I get down without tumbling? How can I do what God has given me to do? And that's the spirit that we need to live in. Just launch ourselves down the ski run with both the, the very focused awareness and the faith that if I just move with God as my companion, it, I will get to the bottom of the hill in one piece and exhilarated by the run. So, flow through life as though on a downhill ski run. Don't puzzle your way through it as if playing a game of chess, plotting each move carefully in advance. Bring spontaneity to everything you do. The smooth flow of intuition can be disrupted by too careful reasoning. Rely more on soul guidance. God bless you, my friends.
Our work is made possible by inspired listeners, so if you feel to support ASHA, you can make a one-time donation, or for unique members-only content, subscribe through Patreon. Blessings and thank you.